0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to a summer extra edition of The Bookshelf with me, Kate Evans, and with best selling English historical novelist Philippa Gregory. She is best known for her Tudor series, including The Other Boleyn Girl, which focused on Anne Boleyn's sister Mary, Mistress to Henry VIII, a novel that was also made into a film, as various of her other books have been as well. Gregory writes about politics, the economy, domestic and court dramas from the perspective of women and often with a hint of magic or the uncanny. She loves a good sweeping saga, as indeed do her many readers. One of my favourites of hers is The Queen's Fool, set in the late 16th century, with a background of the pogroms against Jewish people throughout Europe. Her latest series, though, focuses on a British century of revolution and uprisings, when England was briefly a republic, and there's serious social change bubbling away. It's also a century when the idea of freedom was curtailed, as slavery was increasingly at the heart of an international economy. We're talking the 17th century, and a series that began with Tidelands in 1648, moved through Dark Tides, and her latest, Dawnlands, just published, is where the action begins in 1685. And that's the focus for this discussion. Philippa Gregory, thanks so much for speaking to us on the Bookshelf. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Dawnlands, your latest novel, is part of a series set in the 17th century, although, of course, you can read it as a standalone novel. And there's a combination of court politics and ordinary lives. But in some ways, it feels like a book that's about trade in many different forms. So I wondered what's interesting about trade in this period.
0: I'm so glad you see that because uh, <laughs> basically it's it it is written at a number of levels. So uh, it's an, a time of extraordinary change and challenge. It's it's England's biggest, most effective uh, revolution. Uh, so you know the royal family changes and their relationship to the people changes completely after revolutionary acts in this period. So there's that going on. Then also you've got, obviously, naturally enough, the story of the king and the queen and their court and the people who support and attack them. And that's told as a quite personal story. But all the way through this book and indeed through this series, and there are more to come, is my sense that it's a personal family and a widening world for them. So basically, the family who we first met, very, very poor agricultural workers, casual seasonal agricultural workers on the side of Chichester Harbour in West Sussex, a very poor, muddy bit of the world, uh, get themselves to London, get themselves a warehouse, start to get a toehold into international trade. And what we're going to see is them travel on the coattails of empire, really all over the world, Anywhere that I am able to research and take them and think that the story is really relevant, so it's about it's about empire. My cousin, looking at our family history, said that she wanted to write a book. She she hasn't written it, but we call Empire through one family. And it's extraordinary how many ordinary families in England just really expand internationally because of the spread of the English, of the British Empire.
1: And so, as you say, this is. Um this is a time of great change and you're tracing a family as it starts to spread out around the world. But what I particularly like is the way that you also take us into and onto those docks and wharves. So what was coming in and out of, um, of a place like that?
0: Well, uh, it's literally the, the family's cargo manifest when they start work on the side of the warehouse. They are working the coastal trade. So they're getting apples from Kent and hops and corn and oil and perhaps from France wine. But as the, as they're, trade develops they are themselves importing because they have contacts in Venice Uh, stoneware sculpture luxury goods some spices silks Oriental goods, which get tra- uh, traded through Venice and then on to Europe, in this case through this family's uh, daughter, uh, who's married to a Venetian, and into London. And this really benefits from the takeoff of uh, luxury goods and rebuilding after the Restoration in 1660, when Charles II comes back in with this love of luxury and these this love of art. So you get this real boom then, which turns into, in the end, um, the you know the great 18th century house building boom and the family are part of that but around them on the docks would be starting you're getting starting to get extraordinarily valuable cargoes coming in from India where the East India Company is starting to trade very successfully so you've got all of that spices and luxury goods uh, exotic luxury goods coming in from there and then of course the whole profit of all the ports at this time, the greatest profit is slavery. And though I am deliberately not writing a book explicitly about slavery, I make sure that everyone is completely aware that underpinning the wealth is slavery. And that of course gives you a lot of imports from the sugar islands and from the Americas as they move into plantation crops. At this time, we're mostly sugar, but we're going to be uh, tobacco and cotton also.
1: Yes, you make slavery very visible. How important was that for you in writing about
0: this period to make sure that we did know about that role? It's it's very, it's very a very sensitive topic, of course, because it is the history, half of it is the history of uh, people who are not my people. So in a sense, I think you've got to be very careful if you're a white, middle-class, middle-aged woman writing about the enslavement of Africans and their subsequent lives and development as people in different countries, America and England. So I'm really aware that this isn't my personal history. But on the other side of it, I am rightly, I think, conscious and aware and sensitive about the fact that it is my family history in that my family were as Every other family in England benefiting from the slave trade, and my fictional family are benefiting from the slave trade. So though they're not directly involved as slavers, they're not running slavery voyages yet. In this book, that you know they've always made a living from making uh, tea bags of what they call slavers' tea, which is uh, supposedly to protect you from yellow fever, which killed pretty well quarter of every ship's crew that went into uh, the of Benin and the west coast of Africa. Uh, so that's, you know, they're directly benefiting from the slave trade in that they are trading to people who are slavers. And in this book, um, because they uh, are driven to go to the West Indies, they go to Barbados uh One of the uh characters becomes a shopkeeper. He's in retail, again, selling luxury goods into Barbados, obviously to the only people who can afford luxury goods in Barbados, the wealthy planters. So although they're not directly involved in slavery, the profits from slavery underpin everybody's lives in the 17th century, theirs as well.
1: Yes, and I think it's so important that fiction also makes that practice and those bodies visible as well.
0: As a historian, I, I have a, I feel I have a moral obligation to not serve up a rose-tinted version of the past. So the crime against humanity, which is what slavery was on an industrial scale, is something that you can't write about the past without acknowledging if you're a historian at all. And the the marriage which I do every day between history and fiction can never sanitise the past or make it look happier than it was. So to me, the, the joy of historical fiction is taking the history completely seriously and taking the fiction Uh, you know, seriously also, where it needs to go creatively without in any way pretending that the past was, you know, a particularly lovely place on those occasions when it very much wasn't.
1: Philippa, I am very keen to get to these characters that you've created that really do sing off the page. But if we could just stick with that sort of broad question of history and the stories that we do and don't know or that sort of enter the popular consciousness... As you say, the 17th century is such a period of political change and ferment and uprising and some, you know, really terrible responses to the uprising as well. Particularly speaking to you now in 2022 when there's been this sort of uprising of, um, you know, royal stories everywhere with the death of the Queen. Broadly speaking in England, how aware are people of you know, this republic and the uprising and all the resistance that that happened so dynamically in the 17th century.
0: I mean, it is extraordinary that it's, I don't think people are very aware of it at all. And in a sense, we have ourselves to thank for that, that the task of some historians, especially the Victorian historians, was to stress the continuity and the stability of the royal family. So when they talk uh, about... 1688 and what they called themselves the glorious revolution it's very much uh there was a massive uprising and then then you get a settlement which which lasts for time immemorial so in a way while acknowledging the rev- revolutionary aspect of it by calling it the glorious revolution they absolutely diminished the radical aspect of it by saying what it establishes is the democratic monarchy, which lasts forever. And what they obscure is the change of family, ruling family, which again, they obscure with Victoria. So... As we saw at the uh, late Queen's funeral, there was a lot of commentary which seemed to suggest that she went back directly to the Tudors and presumably beyond to like (laughs) the mists of time. And this simply isn't true. And, you know, it's, it's perfectly clear if you look at any history of the royal family that there are five or six family changes just to keep, just to keep kings on the throne. And 1688 is one where a daughter overthrows her father. I mean, it couldn't be more revolutionary. And then after her death and her sister's death, the house goes to the royal family, become the House of Hanover. So you've got this massive uh, breach there. And we don't pay much attention to it because what we end up with is what we like to think of as being the natural state of England, which is a sort of fairly... A sort of attenuated democracy. So it's not really democracy in 1688, but you start making the steps towards what we have today, which is a constitutional monarchy.
1: And that then makes less visible characters like your man, Ned Ferryman, who had fought for liberty for England. He'd been a leveller, he believed in equality. So tell us about this character and what he offers you as a, as a novelist, having a character with these types of political views.
0: I'm really delighted that uh, I've get I I've had such a good response from readers about the character of Ned Ferryman. And I think he is certainly unusual in historical fiction in that he's, an, as you say, he's a Cromwellian, he's a parliamentary man, he's a Democrat, he's a leveller, he's on the very much on the left of the debate. And not only did such characters exist in our past, but their history has been obscured because... What the historians, particularly the Victorian historians, wanted to stress was consensus and a coming together of all shades of political opinion to get to this triumph, which was the constitutional monarchy under Victoria. And immediately then they they turn into an imperial monarch. So, in a way, you actually establish this sort of rather constitutional democratic position, and then you graft on top of it an imperial diadem, which makes no sense at all. However, the, the drive to say that we don't have radical political change in England and we don't have radical political thinkers is absolutely fascinating to me. And Ned Ferryman is one of the many, many, is an example, a fictional example of one of the many, many true life historical characters who were always absolutely Republican, absolutely revolutionary, and never changed their minds through, you know, what was a complete republic, through what was... The subsequently two or three revolutionary rebellions, and there continue to be uh, revolutionary movements right the way up to the present day. I mean, we've still got a thriving Republican movement in England today. You know, it is absolutely part of the history of the country. And Ned Ferryman is a very, very, I think, typical man though it could be a woman who participates in it in that they're very level headed they know they lose more than they win but they have a faith that the working class people of england in particular but britain really have a desire to sh- t- take political power and can be trusted with political power and that's you know that's the the grassroots of the constitution we now have
1: and As you write your way into a character like Ned, how easy is it to have access to the sort of world and world of the imagination that he inhabited? I mean, what sort of research and resources
0: are available to you? There's a lot of work, luckily for me, done just after the Second World War, there was a lot of work done by English left-wing thinkers, English Marxists on working class people and working class radical movements. So there's, you know, there's tons on the levellers, there's tons on the diggers. You've got their own writings. You're actually at a point there where working class men in particular are starting to write and publish. So you've actually got the tracks that they that someone like Ned would have read and would have contributed to the publication. So so you, you've actually got written records there of these people. And then, you know, in a sense, there's a tradition, which I really, really feel that it's possible to access today of these. You know, I had two tutors at university who were absolutely committed, democratic, left wing people who never stopped questioning uh, the society we live in and, and like I kind of I didn't consciously draw on them, but I I just believe my character Ned is very much in the tradition of these people. The other bit of research that I did, which was incredibly helpful, was uh, I went to Hadley uh, in Connecticut in New England, which is where Ned goes to, to get away from the restored monarchy of Charles II in the previous book, which is called Dark Tides. And as it happens, I didn't plan it, but I thought that that's where he would go. And when I started researching where he was going, I discovered that there were in hiding there two Cromwellian generals who become part of the myth of New England, uh, New England's savior myth. So when the terrible war uh, called King Philip's War against the Native Americans starts, these Cromwellian generals sort of appear out of hiding, uh, completely legendary, but are said to appear out of hiding and, you know, defend the English way of life in uh, colonial America. So, I mean, extraordinary. There, there, there were living people, uh, historical characters, living where I had sent my imaginary character. And it's at moments like that that you go, like, I am absolutely congruent <laughs> with what's what's going on here. Like, just. A bit by luck, a bit by research, a bit by going for what is the most likely thing for someone to do. And sometimes, particularly actually in this series, I just find I keep going like I think they would go there. And then you find that somebody is there just like them doing what you think they should be doing. But what a, what a gift for a writer. It's an absolute blessing and it's the coming together of intuition and research. And, of course, that's what historical fiction is also. It's fact and imagination. And that happens to me in the writing. It doesn't just happen on the page. It's, it's I mean, heavenly. Every, every now and then I look up and go like, gosh, I have just written that and now I've done the research and found that it happened in real life. That's extraordinary <laughs> to me.
1: There are so many characters that that we meet through this story and I could ask you about many of them, but I have to say you have created quite the villain in your character, Livia, but she also does something that you've explored in some of your other books, which is that she is a woman who is close to the royal body and so she gets access to all sorts of um, stories and power and so on. So, what is the pleasure in creating a character like her with that sort
0: of access? She's divine to work <laughs> on. Uh, in a sense, she's she's not entirely of my invention. I think she is a a theme, a trope of particularly historical fiction. So she is she is the Italian widow who comes into the respectable English family and brings to them exotic and scary and sexually active and mysterious and possibly poisons and like this is this is a fictional creation which occurs in so many. English historical novels. I was thinking of My Cousin Rachel by Daphne du Maurier, who has an Italian widow who has poisoned her husband and comes from Italy and invades, as it were, this English family. Or um, Madame Merle in Henry James's Portrait of a Lady, or the character in Liaison d'Angereux. You know, these are the English writers' fears of what foreign women are like. Um, I've just remembered there's a Bronte, Villette, there's a scary French widow in in Villette. And, you know, I was consciously going like, I think I'll have one of these for my (laughs) entertainment and to move my story into into different areas. So this character, um, my lovely Livia, makes the connection between the warehouse family who she basically invades and corrupts and challenges and uses as a stepping stone to greater things in dark tides and they the connection she makes then get her to the court in this this next book and also give her raise for her her son, who becomes absolutely a motor of change in um, in the plot. So, it, you know, she, she's terribly useful as a novelist in that she stitches these quite disparate worlds together. And she stitches them together because she's incredibly socially ambitious. So shows you a joy as, as a novelist because you have someone who is, while not completely villainous in that uh, she doesn't in this book kill anybody Uh, she does you know kidnap a baby I mean she is completely unscrupulous and uh, you know she really fits into these rather these times of obscurity and danger and lawlessness where people think it's okay to do anything you like to get your own way. Yes, she is utterly ruthless. Mm. But I guess I was thinking of
1: her partly in in another set of traditions, which is traditions that you've written into about those games of royal bodies. Um, And that's so much of an issue in your Tudor series. And so I was also thinking about the way in which your work in that series walked imaginatively through some of the same rooms as the novelist Hilary Mantel, who sadly died recently, And I'm wondering how much you two shared as writers.
0: We laughed more than once about the fact that she once said in an interview that uh, basically she wrote about men talking about male politics and male business in a small closed room. And I said to her, that's exactly the sort of fiction I can't stand. (laughs) uh, I mean, I I adored Wolf Hall. I read it uh, before I knew her and I wrote to her a fan letter and just said, you know, what you've done here is phenomenal. But uh, she very, very, very much is interested in the male history and the male uh, drive for power and male ambition and male plotting. And I genuinely, I'm interested in it when she writes it, but genuinely, I regard that as the background to the history I want to tell, which is how do women survive in a world like that, where that's going on. So we did, I mean, we regarded ourselves as uh, two sides of, of the same Tudor coin, actually. And we met a few times and we had a terrific uh, discussion on the Queen's now the the, the now Queen, the Queen consorts uh, reading book club where they filmed us. they actually said, will you talk? Uh, amongst yourselves about your craft and your technique and your interests for say 10 minutes and we said yeah okay and we sat down in a room and they they came in at 20 and said we've got to stop you (laughs) (laughs) but literally we could have we you know we just got into a very very interesting groove I mean she is a very 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 fine writer and a very strong researcher and you know that's you know, what I like to do as well. And it's so interesting to me that we occurred at the same sort of time in, in chronologically and looked at exactly the same material and took completely opposite, I mean, biologically opposite views of it. So I am really only interested in the women's survival at the male court. And she is interested in that very much peripheral to the story, which is the dominant historical narrative, which is Henry VIII and his courtiers and advisers.
1: Although I guess I've always thought of you both as being interested in the the risk that comes with proximity to the royal body, because as there's um, a sort of intimate contact with power, so those political games get more
0: and more risky and more and more at stake. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, I think for women, the risk is overlaid with the fact that the male gaze and the male hand is directly on their bodies. So the relationship between Cromwell and Henry, while one of immense intimacy, only turns violent very, very occasionally when Henry is in a terrific temper. The relationship between Henry and all his wives is always violent and it always involves a sexual act which is you know which is often violent as well and in a sense it's that the fact that they start the women start as victims to male will and have to survive that whereas the men start in a position of opportunity i think more
1: let's return though to the 17th century and philippa gregory's latest novel As you continue this series, how far are you going to take it? Are you continuing it chronologically or will you be staying in the 1680s and
0: spreading out elsewhere into the world? What are you doing with this series? My intention was always to do a a family saga which went chronologically through time and which took this one family from poverty, the side of the of the sea in Sussex to other seas and other countries and uh the global expansion of Empire and probably ended in something like 1920 with this with a sort of possibly between then and now a number of financial crises and probably ended up at 1920 with the sort of retrenchment that led towards you know the crash so uh I had this plan for these many books, but which would go quite rapidly through the centuries. And then I found, I fell in love with my first character, Eleanor, and I couldn't let her go. So the next book was her survival from the crisis of the first book which took me only uh, 20 years on and then i fell in love with everybody again in the second book so i couldn't leave them alone so that took me only 20 years on to the se- so i'm now in this ridiculous situation that it's taking me about 5 years 5 books to get through a century and that's, I'm not going to get to 1920. (laughs) You're not going to get to
1: 1920 at
0: that rate. (laughs) I'm not, you know, like, I'm not a young woman. I'm going to die before, you know, I get to my ending. So uh, I'm currently thinking two two things. Um, One is like, this is how I like to write this saga. So I will just go on uh, at a fairly slow pace, which means that I can have the youth and the middle age, and sometimes the old age of my characters. and, And that is deeply satisfying to me to really take them through their lives. So that's one way of doing it. And the other way of doing it would be to harden my heart and say like, okay, we're going to jump now to post-French Revolution, to you know, post-Napoleonic Wars and get ourselves into the, the 19th century. But I I honestly I don't know what I'm going to do. There's going to be another book in this series, but the date of it I have not yet decided.
1: Well, I enjoyed being immersed in the 17th century, I have to confess. So, Philippa Gregory, congratulations on Dawnlands and thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so much. It was a really interesting conversation for me. Philippa Gregory's Dawnlands is published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Kate Evans and this has been an extra edition of The Bookshelf. And yes, I do think that it's good summer reading. And there's plenty more summer reading ahead via the ABC Listen app or anywhere else you listen to us. So many books. Please do share the bookshelf around, tell your friends, and remember that you can check details of the books and authors that we mention by searching for ABC RN's The Bookshelf and scrolling through the program page. Enjoy your reading and listening. Bye for now.